This message by Craig Cabin is titled, Worshiping God as Creator, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the second main session at our 2004 Worship God Conference. Craig is Senior Pastor of Grace Church in San Diego, California. Genesis 1, Chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Pray with me, if you would. Oh God, we come before you this morning and we lay our lives before you. God, we posture our hearts before you this morning, for we do not come in evaluation of you, but we come to be evaluated by you. Lord, we posture our hearts as those who are ignorant, those who have hard hearts, those who have dull ears, those who see very little, and we cry out for mercy. God, we pray that through your scripture you would open our eyes to you and to your ways, that you would captivate our heart with a vision for what you've done in the glorious, indescribable work of creation. We pray that you would refresh our hearts with a a vision and a, a compelling desire to worship you, our creator, God. God, we pray, pray this morning that you would smash small idols which reign in our hearts and you, the living God, would be our everything. Oh God, grant me grace to declare your word. Grant me grace to preach your word for your glory and for your glory alone. May we be affected by your word, and may we be changed by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles Swindoll tells the story of two men that were standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and overlooking its vast expanse. One man looked down at the cavern, at the, at the Grand Canyon, and with a breathless expression exclaimed, This is the hand of God. I am amazed. The man standing next to him looked over the edge of the Grand Canyon and spit. And he said, Wow, that's the first time I ever spit a mile. <laughs> Swindoll writes, I guess it's all how you look at things. I guess it's all how you look at things. The same sight presented to two different men. One is appropriately struck with awe. 
as he considers the majestic Creator. It weighs upon his soul and he responds with an appropriate declaration of amazed worship. Not only at the vastness of the landscape, but at the vastness of the creator of the landscape. The man next to him, well, he misses an opportunity to worship God. And instead he wastes his awe on the trivial. He squanders his sense of wonder. He finds the ordinary breathtaking and he misses the glorious altogether. Wowed by plunging saliva. He misses the very purpose of his life, the very reason for his existence, to recognize the work of God and to return in humble adoration and praise for God Almighty. You see, it all depends on how you look at things. And this morning I want to ask you, how is it that you look at the Creator I want us to consider the Creator this morning with an eye towards considering both His character and His work. Sadly, for most of my Christian life, I have not given adequate consideration to the Creator and His work. I have failed to adequately consider it through general revelation, through the creation itself, and even have missed the predominant theme through his special revelation, that is his scripture, throughout the predominant theme of God's majesty as creator and as man's appropriate response of worship to the creator. Much of the teaching on creation that I have even heard or encountered has taken the tack of seeking to critique evolution. Or much of the teaching on creation I've heard has uh, sought to offer a scientific explanation of creation so as to sort of buttress the arguments or really the propositional statements of Scripture itself about creation. But only recently have I really considered the central emphasis of the doctrine of creation. The doctrine of creation in the Bible is not there primarily as an apologetic for us to explain the existence of God. The doctrine of creation is found in the Bible in the first place to elicit our worship, to elicit our amazement, to elicit our wonder at the God of creation. In the beginning... God. Four words into the Bible, and we are already beyond our capacity to explain the majesty of God. Already we're beyond our ability. We bump up against transcendence. We bump up against mystery in the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Speaking of a writing of Genesis 1, John Calvin wrote the following. Since the infinite wisdom of God 
is displayed in the admirable structure of heaven and earth. It is absolutely impossible to unfold the history of the creation of the world in terms equal to its dignity. How well said. The infinite wisdom of God is displayed in creation. So it is impossible to absolutely explain it. I have chosen to premise this, Calvin writes, for the sake not only of excusing myself, but of admonishing my readers that if they sincerely wish to profit with me in meditating on the words of God, they must bring with them a sober, docile, mild, and humble spirit. A lot of the teaching I have heard about creation has not carried with it a docile, mild, and humble spirit, but often an argumentative, arrogant, self-righteous spirit. See, I bring this to your attention for the same two reasons that Calvin did. One is to realize the impossible task of explaining God the Creator in terms equal to His dignity and in terms equal to the dignity of the act of creation and also to excuse myself, as Calvin did. If he can write, please excuse me, there's no way to express this adequately. I think a a sermon beginning on the topic of creation could appropriately begin with, Please excuse me. Please excuse me. We are in lofty, lofty territory. See, a biblical teaching on creation should not leave us walking away, able to explain it all. I've got it down. I know all about it. Rather, it should leave us with awe. It should leave us with mystery. It should leave us with wonder. See, a genuine understanding of the Creator... And the creation, the more we know of him at one level, the gap between creator and creation does not close the more we consider his work. In many ways, it widens the gap in our understanding between who God is and what we are as he is portrayed in our mind and in our understanding as as he really is. Marvelous, wonderful, incomprehensible, glorious, majestic. In his work, we we don't come away more able to understand and figure him out. At one level, we come away with a greater sense of awe and saying, won't heaven be glorious when we meet him face to face? I really want to make two points from this first verse of Genesis 1 today. The first is this. The focus of creation is God. The focus of creation is God. And secondly, the goal of creation is worship. And we'll look at some other scripture to make that point. But the focus of creation is God. The goal of creation is worship. The subject, both grammatically and thematically, of the first verse of the Bible is God. Look at it. In the beginning, God created. Grammatically, God is the subject of the first verse of the Bible. And thematically as well. The entire first chapter of Genesis is filled with reference to God. By merely considering repetition alone, the emphasis of the first chapter becomes oh so evident. In the first 35 verses, the name for God is used some 35 times. The creation, as described in the first chapter of the first book of the Old Testament, is about God. And his work. 
Like any story, the Bible begins with introducing the characters that we will see throughout. Don't have to go past the first verse of the first book of the Bible to see the Bible is, in fact, about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we are first introduced to God here, in the Scripture, we immediately learn some things about Him. Not only is He the focus of creation, but we also see here that God is eternal. And that is perhaps better explained even in other Scripture. But God is eternal. In the beginning, God already exists. At the dawn of time, God is already on the scene. God is there. He is without beginning. He is without end. Everything and everyone has a beginning except for God. The Creator and the creation distinction, which we will see throughout Scripture The distinction, the infinite chasm between God and man, in God and man's nature, the the infinite distance between them in their nature. We, We see that distinction in all its blazing glory from the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. At the beginning of time, God was there. Nancy Gans, in a commentary for children, on the book of Genesis, and I just found that very helpful. Reading a commentary for children, I could track along well with her. But I'm hoping she'll do commentaries on the whole Bible. That'd be wonderful. Just fill my shelves with uh, understandable commentaries. This is what Gans writes. She says, God was there in the beginning. God was there before the beginning. God was there without a beginning. See, that stretches beyond the limit of our comprehension because we know nothing or no one without a beginning. Everything that we know of in creation has some point of starting except God. You see, at the grand opening of the universe... There is only one present. It is God. He is the only one there. See, this should cause us to be of docile. That's easily maneuvered, easily led. Of docile spirit. And of humble spirit. As we consider the God who is without beginning. And without end. Causes us to pause and to still our hearts in reflection, in admiration, in meditation. God is infinitely superior. God is infinitely grand and glorious. God is beyond our figuring out. God is beyond our control. God is beyond our manipulation. He's not a user-friendly God. He's eternal, without beginning, without end. Categorically different than you and I. See, frequently our souls are impoverished because we don't consider. We don't 
give thought to God and his nature. Truth be told, we often spend our awe on the relatively trivial. Worship leaders, musicians, singers, technicians, let's ensure that we invest our awe and our wonder appropriately. There's nothing wrong with admiring a cool sound. There's nothing wrong with appreciating a hot guitar lick, a novel chord progression. There's nothing wrong with appreciating that. But let's reserve our awe, not for those things, Let's reserve our sense of amazement and wonder, not for, wow, that sounded great. Let's reserve our ultimate sense of wonder for the God to whom we sing and for whom we worship. Let's invest our awe in Him. Let's reserve the language of highest praise and adoration and admiration for God. Let us not confuse God with God's provisions. Let us not confuse God, the end of our worship, with the various means of worship that he gives us to use for his glory. Without beginning, eternal, there from the start, he is worthy of our worship. God is also uncreated In the beginning, God is there. He has always self-existed. Everything is created by Him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a means of speaking, a figure of speech, if you will, that that it indicates totality. When when it's written here, heavens and earth, it, it indicates totality. It is as if I were to say to you, I'll be at your house next Wednesday, rain or shine. I don't mean that if it's raining, I'll be there, and if it's sun shining, I'll be there, but if it's partly cloudy, I'm staying home. When I say rain or shine, I mean under any circumstances, I will be at your house. That's what it means by heavens and earth. Every imaginable thing and place is created by God. The totality of creation is the work of our glorious Creator. He created everything. He, on the other hand, is uncreated. There are two categories. There is the column for the creator. There is the column for the created. Under the column for the creator, there is one, God. Under the column for the created is everything else. You and I are in the second column and not the first column. Now, this is not as lofty as what we heard last night. I got two columns, God and everybody else. That's about as deep as it gets. It's about as profound as it's coming. But it's true nonetheless, isn't it? God is the creator. Everything else is the created. God exists in and of himself. We exist because he created us and granted us existence. Think of it this way. Without me, God exists. Without God, I don't exist. God existed gloriously before me and before you. God existed gloriously and satisfied before any creation whatsoever. 
God is independent. God is self-existent. God is uncreated. See, one implication of God's independence and our dependence, God needs no one or no thing. We need God. One implication of God's independence and our dependence is that everyone is accountable to God. By virtue of his creation, everyone is accountable to God. And God is accountable to no one but himself. We often want God to give an account of himself. We often want God to measure up to our accounting. But we have to go again no further than the first verse of Scripture in the beginning. God created by virtue of his creation By virtue of his self-existence, by virtue of his self-sufficiency, by virtue of his independence, he gives account to no one, and everyone must give account to him. We are accountable to God, because God has made all things. And by the way, everyone knows that to be true, Scripture says. Romans 1 says that everyone knows that to be true. Not just Christians, not just evangelicals, not just Bible believers, but everyone. Romans 1 says, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without Excuse. It is plain to everyone. God has shown it to everyone. So everyone is without excuse. Again, in her children's commentary, Gans writes about this verse. Where did everything we see come from? The answer to this question is written in our hearts. Everybody knows the answer, but not everybody likes the answer. Or says the answer. Where did everything come from? The answer is also written in the Bible. It is given to us in the very first words on the very first page of the very first book in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Everyone knows the answer, but not everyone likes the answer, and not everyone says the answer. By virtue of creation, everyone is accountable to God. This is really the starting place for evangelism, by the way. Evangelism really doesn't start... Evangelism starts in the first verse of the Bible. It really doesn't start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The Bible really starts with God made you, you must answer to Him. Evangelism begins with God created you, therefore you must give an account to Him. God requires your devotion, worship, and your obedience. You must give account to him. God created you. You were responsible to him. You were dependent on him. In the beginning, God created. He is uncreated. He exists on his own. He answers to no one. He is independent. That should give us a greater awareness of our need for God to whom we are accountable. God, I believe one thing God is about at this conference, I don't 
claim to be a prophet or to be able to analyze all that the Lord wants to do, for there are countless things he wants to do in this conference. But I think certainly one thing that God wants to do in this conference is cultivate an awareness of our need for him afresh and to stir us all over again with a wake-up call about his greatness and our weakness, about his glory and about our need, about his self-existence and our absolute dependence upon him for the very air that I am breathing right now. The result of which should be the cultivation of humility in our hearts and the the eliciting of liberal worship as a way of life and as a subset of life in our corporate gatherings as we gather to sing his praise and proclaim his kingship. God is eternal. God is self-existent. God is omnipotent. That is, he is all-powerful. In the beginning, God created This verb created is used in the Bible uh, only with God as its subject. It, it It doesn't indicate that he is working with existing material, but that he is bringing into being what previously did not exist. He creates something out of nothing. The scripture elsewhere echoes that truth. Psalm 33 says, By the word... By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He spoke, and it came to be. That is absolute power. That where there is nothing, by the very word of God, something is created to then obey the word of God. Something out of nothing. No one in this room can do that. If I walk up to you with a handful of nothing, and we know that's not really nothing. There's atoms and stuff spinning around there, whatever I learned in in high school science. I don't recall, but something's here anyway. And if I hand you this nothing and say, create something, and you receive the nothing, you can make nothing from the nothing. You say, oh, but you can hand me nothing and I could write a song. I heard your song. It's nothing. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Just joking. Just joking. Where did sound come from? Where did the notes come from? On the sad occasion when I led worship in our church plant, as Eric described earlier, and played guitar, it is possible some new sounds were created at that time. (laughs) I'm pretty sure some things were sung and were played that had never been heard in the universe. But it would be crossing the line to inappropriateness to say that that was something I created out of nothing. That's not true. I just took notes and ruined them. That's all I did. I was working with existing materials and tarnishing said materials with my guitar and with my singing. But you cannot create something out of nothing. God is so powerful that he can speak and where nothing exists, it is created and obeys his very command. That's power. That's incomparable, indescribable power. That's power for which I really can't offer an analogy. 
So I can't say, you know, I was in the mall and it's sort of like... There's no sort of like creating something out of nothing by merely the word of His power. We are at a loss to adequately describe that other than to say, see everything, see the universe, see the starry host, consider all of creation. It came from the word of God. It came by his power. It's the result of his will in action. Sorry, I can't illustrate it. Just look at the sky. God did it by his power. God is omnipotent. He is self-existent. He is eternal. See, this verse brings us face to face with God. And we find from the beginning, he is in a category by himself. He is the creator. I am not. I am part of the creation. That must weigh in my soul. That must bring a healthy sobriety to the flippancy and the giddiness of so much of current spirituality, much of which I would have to identify in my own life. Just a certain casual nature with God, a certain flippancy about the Christian life and the things of God. This verse must weigh on our soul for the one with whom we have to do and to whom we will give an account is bigger than previously He's greater than I know. He's more glorious than I can imagine. He is beyond my verbal description and my mental apprehension. He is God and there is none like him. The focus of creation is not the how-tos ultimately, though though the days of creation and the how-to is certainly important, but the repetition is God. The emphasis and the focus of creation is God and his work, his power, his majesty, his character. The goal of creation, and we're going to look elsewhere somewhat in Scripture for this, the goal of creation is worship. If the focus of creation is God, the goal of creation is worship. You see, the creation exists for God. We get this reversed frequently and assume that God exists for us, the creation. But the creation exists for God. Now, not in the sense, as was clearly explained last night, not in the sense that God needs the creation. I'm not meaning to imply that at all. But that the creation exists to reflect the glory of God. And there is a shift that comes in our lives when when we are gripped with the reality that God does not exist for me, but I exist for God. When that revolution takes place from a man-centered approach to my Christian faith to a God-centered approach for my Christian faith, that is perhaps the singular greatest shift, paradigm shift, that, that, that brings the greatest fruit in the Christian life is to really come to grips with the fact that I exist for him, that it really is, as we sang this morning, all about him. And that, that plays itself out in numerous ways. Even, even in our Sunday gatherings, as we gather to worship God, see, how I arrive for the worship service What's on my mind? When, how about that? When I arrive for the worship service reveals my functional doctrine of creation at some degree, to some degree. Does God exist for me or do I exist for him? Am I showing up as a consumer 
finding out, well, what has God got for me today? Do I casually saunter in late? Something will probably happen and I'll be late to tonight's meeting, probably because I'm saying this. But there are excuses. Things happen. I'm talking about an attitude of heart, ultimately. Do I come in with an awareness that I am here for God? What a grand and glorious privilege to gather with the people of God, to declare the works of God, to hear the word of God taught, to sing the praises of God, to pray with the people of God, to interact with God's people. Do I, do I, do I enter that experience thinking, wonder what they're going to do for me today? Or do I enter it saying, I exist for God. I am here for you. He's the creator and he owns the creation. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. John Piper says with the familiar clarity that he brings to phrases. He says, he owns all things and all people, absolutely. God owns all things and all people, absolutely. He owns us by virtue of creation, and our response to him is to be worshipped in the broadest sense of the word, a life lived for his glory. For he owns us. He created us for himself, and we are obligated and privileged to live our lives in worship to him. When we properly understand God as the creator, we get to the answer to the question, why am I here? I am here for the glory of God, for the pleasure of God, with the privilege of experiencing God, the fullness of God. You were created to worship him. The creation exists for him and for his glory. If that's the case, why is it that we don't live lives of worship for the glory of God? Why is it that we invest our worship? We're created with a capacity, an innate desire to worship. Why is it that we redirect our worship from the creator God to other things and other people? Well, the answer is not found in chapter 1. The answer is found in chapter 3. Because the second great event in the history of salvation, the next milestone, as it were, is when Adam and Eve in chapter 3 choose to sin. They're created by God. They're created for fellowship with God and they resist and reject the privilege of, un, of open, unhindered, sinless communion with God. And they trade it for self-worship. And since then, we have all been born in sin. We are born with a nature that is fallen, that is given to defying the Creator rather than glorifying the Creator. We are born with our wills bent towards ourselves rather than bent toward God. And each act of our pride, our selfishness, our anger, our greed, our lust is an act of defying the Creator God 
and His stipulations for the creation, and instead saying, I am God. I will live how I want to live. I will live in what brings me pleasure rather than what brings your pleasure, God. I will live for what hollows my name instead of your name, God. You see, that's the nature of sin. That, that, that man who was created for the worship of God spends his worship elsewhere on surrounding idolatries, on cravings and lusts to bring himself glory rather than to bring God glory. God creates the human race. The human race resists the loving and holy God of the universe. And God would have been just to end it at chapter 3. It would not have been unfair to say, game over. It would not have been uh, wrong for God to have said, justice demands that you die and that you die now. And we wouldn't be here today speaking of the holy God of the universe if he had ended everything in chapter 3. God could have ended it, but God in his mercy, chose to save a people for himself. God chose the creator God to take human flesh, to become man, fully God and fully man, in the person of Jesus Christ, to come and die as a substitute for those who had resisted his will and his way to die as a substitute for those who had who had defied his very holiness who had resisted his will who had acted in active rebellion against his holiness god in his mercy chose to save for himself rebels to make enemies his friends and the cost of doing so was the coming of Christ, God Himself in the flesh, the innocent to die for the guilty, the pure to give His life for the sinful, the Lamb of God sacrificed for the haters of God. The one who created and deserves worship comes and dies for those who worship themselves. Colossians 1 expresses this so clearly that Christ, for whom all was created, gave his life for us. Colossians 1 reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Christ, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.
It's a wonderful text wherein the Spirit inspires Paul to write of both creation and redemption. That it was all created, all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created for God. Yet we fell and there was need for reconciliation. And the same word is used through him to reconcile to himself all things making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything's made through him and for him. We resist him. We rebel against him. And through him comes redemption. And for him is bought a people reconciled to their God by the blood of his cross. Listen, if we don't understand the implications of creation, we will not value the glory of redemption. If we do not understand the implications of the creation and what it means, the creation exists for God, that God owns all things and all people absolutely, and then understand the fall, what our sin really means, it is not that we just stepped over a line a few times. It's not that we just broke a few random rules. It's that we defied as a band of rebels... As a group of insurrectionists, we, we made an assault on the very throne of God, saying, not your will, but mine. And for that, we deserve the eternal wrath of God for our sin. Created for Him, yet living for ourselves. Yet God, who was rich in mercy and kind and gracious and loving to his people, takes our sin. Jesus Christ on the cross endures the wrath of God. The Father pours out the justified, holy anger that he has for our sin upon his own Son. Jesus the eternal one dying for the created ones, you and I, who have resisted their creator and that with great vigor and great joy. And he dies for us. This is mercy. See, the creation is important. The doctrine of creation is important on its own. But a more thoughtful view of creation yields a more glorious view of redemption. The more we consider what God has done in creation, the more we are aware of how great is the blood shed for us. We're standing on his dirt. We are breathing his air. We are warmed by his sun. And yet we have defied his rule. And he, in his mercy has reconciled, first, I mean, uh, Colossians 1 says, reconciled and made peace. He made peace with us through the blood of his cross. See, let's not waste our worship on the trivial. Let's not waste our amazement on the mundane or even the sinful. Let's reserve and let's invest our amazement in the God who has not only created all things, but when we fell has now redeemed us so that we are restored. 
to the creator of all things. The creation also exists to provoke man to worship God. The creation itself exists. Not only does the creation exist for God, but the physical creation exists to provoke man to worship God. Someone has said the goal of theology is doxology. That is, everything we learn about the character and work of God is to be turned to God and should lead us in praise of God. This is clearly evident in Scripture when it comes to the truth that God created something out of nothing. See, when we see the work of God and the power of God in his creation, it is to cause us to wonder at him and to turn to him in worship. The creation provokes us to worship. The creation provokes us to worship. Psalm 33, which we read in part earlier, I'm going to read, it, read again a section of that. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host, all the stars and planets. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. See, when we see the creation, the the psalmist says the response is to be, let all the earth fear the God who created this. Let all the earth stand in awe. Let every heart be touched with a holy hush before God and what He has done when we gaze into the evening sky. Fear the Lord. Stand in awe of Him. Recently came across an article written to worship leaders by Louis Giglio. The article was called Little Leaders, And he's seeking to make the point that as we gaze at the creation of God, it is to affect our hearts before God, which should be uh, affecting change in the way we lead God's people. This is what he writes. Recently, I was stunned by a photograph in USA Today of what astronomers say is the perfect spiral galaxy taken with the help of a new telescope on the big island of Hawaii. The photo shows a breathtaking shot of a galaxy named NGC 628, slightly smaller than our Milky Way. It contains only a paltry 100 billion stars. And get this, it is 30 million light years away. So his point was that this galaxy, 30 million light years away, a photograph was taken and published, USA Today. Funny, he writes, the whole point of the accompanying article was our great achievement for taking such a great photograph (laughs) with our two-week-old telescope. Aren't we great? Hmm... Seems like all the wrong pronouns. Granted, we have done well to photograph anything 30 million light years away, but let's get the point straight. God's hand put every one of those stars in place. An appropriate caption for this photo would have been, 
can you believe God made this stuff with his own hands? (laughs) Psalm 8, Louis quotes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? He goes on, notice all the pronouns. Your heavens, your fingers, you set in place. Get it? God is far from small. In fact, it's safe to say our self-limitation has never fully allowed us to think of him as he is. Given his incomprehensible immensity, the fact that he is mindful of us at all is amazing. So if you want a quick glimpse into how small you are as a worship leader, take note of which pronouns consume you. His, he, and yours, or I, me, and mine. Little leaders use he a lot. Big leaders use me. That's not that we are nobodies. We are created a little lower than the angels and are crowned with glory and honor made in his image, Psalm 8, 5. We get to rule over all that he has made, but we've only to look up to be resized in an instant. We've only to look up to be resized in an instant. When we see the creation of God, we are to be resized very small. See, the tendency of the human heart is that we will always seek to supersize. Would I like to go big with that? Yeah, I would. It's me. There's no need to supersize our abilities or our knowledge. Listen, you are small fry at best. God is glorious, majestic, wonderful, and worship flows from a heart that has been awed by God and humbled by God. And a work at the Creator God both awes and humbles so that we become small in our own eyes and He becomes great in our eyes as He already is in reality. One last point, and we are done. The creation exists for God. The creation exists to provoke man to worship God. The last thought is this. The Creator will be our focus for all eternity. The Creator will be our focus for all eternity. Revelation 4 gives a wonderful scene in heaven. And perhaps you can read these words as I have recently with fresh understanding considering God's great work of creation. The text reads, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy 
are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. You created all things. This vision of heaven captures reality. The 24 elders worship God. They fall down and worship Him for what He has done. And at this point, they cast their crowns before Him, declaring His worth. They declare that He is infinitely deserving and worthy of all worship. And the reason is because He has created all things. He has created all things. Therefore, all things exist because of Him. All things are sustained because of Him. All things were created by Him and for Him. And it is a picture capturing all of their being in worship before the Creator God. Those who are removed from sin see reality as it is and it puts them on their faces. See, it's worth noting what happens in heaven. It's very much worth noting when we get the picture here in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation of how people are responding in heaven. Because they are seeing reality through eyes where there is no present sin. They are seeing reality for what it really is and for who he really is. And their posture is not to debate the apologetic value of creation. Their posture is not to explain all the detail of it. Their posture is on the ground, crowns off the head, face on the mat before God, saying, you are worthy to receive all glory, all honor, all power, for you created everything, and everything has been sustained by you. And we... The rebellious people who sinned against you have been saved and reconciled by the Lamb who sits on the throne. That's reality. That's appropriate. They get it. For them it is not worship God and now think about myself. For them it is worship God and think about God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. When we've properly understood the doctrine of creation, really this is where we find ourselves. Falling before him who is seated on the throne and worshiping him. That's the goal of creation. That's the goal of creation. That God would create a people. That God would redeem a people. That God would rescue a people. That God would glorify a people. Resurrect a people. And draw a people to himself to worship him and that for eternity. He is worthy for he has created all things and he has redeemed for himself a people. Therefore, worship God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the resizing that many of us feel this morning. 
Thank you for a more accurate understanding of reality from your scripture. That you, the glorious creator, are infinitely worthy of our affection, our adoration, our worship, our thoughts, our lives. You are worthy of everything, for you have created everything. And Lord, we not only worship you as creator, but we worship you as those whose sins have been washed away. For you have not treated us as our sins deserve. You have treated your own son as our sins deserve. So we come as those whose faces are on the ground, saying, worthy are you who created all things, and worthy are you who shed your own blood, Lord Jesus, and endured the Father's wrath to redeem us, a people, for yourself. And therefore, Lord, we humbly we thoughtfully, we mildly and meekly stand in awe of you and give you glory, which is due your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Craig Cabanis, which was given at the 2004 Worship God Conference. It has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.